Hey folks, welcome to Your Basket is Empty, the space where I sit down with the world's most interesting people and direct to consumer. I'm your host, Tim. So we're back. <laughs> we're a little late, but we're back. This is series one of 2022, and I have the pleasure of sitting down with a select group of brands from across the DTC ecosystem to unpack how they're navigating what is turning out to be a pretty interesting and challenging consumer landscape. Before we get into it, I got a question for you. If you're buying something online, do you check the reviews? Of course you do, we all do. But what if the reviews are fake? That's exactly what happened to Toma Target in 2011 when he bought a camera based on shoddy reviews. He got stitched up with a bad product, so decided to do something about it. Launching Yotpo, our exclusive partner for this series. Yotpo makes it easy to get verified reviews from your customers and then display it on your e-commerce site and in your marketing, like social media ads. 10 reviews can uplift conversion by 53%, but 100 can more than double that. Yeah, that's big numbers. So if you're in e-commerce and want more customers, check out yotpo.com. That's yotpo.com. Enjoy the episode. Alan, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you and where are you? Yeah, I'm good. You know, um, you know where I am is, you know, I'm in New York. Um, nice. I'm from Long Island City. Um, but yeah, I'm doing great. Nice. I like to start these things usually with a bit of a rewind, right? It's nice to kind of sort of set the scene a bit. So I'm keen to understand like what we up to before Hero Cosmetics. Yeah, no problem. So I spent all my career in the startup world. Um, I started out on the investment side working for a company called ERA. Um, they were investment companies that did pre-seed investment about 20 a year. Um, and we really kind of helped shape teams, products, and, you know, help them with their next round of funding. Um, that's really the place where I fell in love with early stage startups. Yep. Um, and, you know, I think it's one of the most wonderful things. Um, and if you don't love it, don't join an early stage startup. That's what I would tell people. <laughs> <laughs> that's so interesting. Well, it's, it's, it's a curious point because I, I, I totally agree with you. I think people like the romanticism of them, but the mm -hmm. work and what's required is sometimes where I think people they once they're in it they find it really challenging particularly i found people that come from big corporations i think they like the idea yeah. and then when they're in it uh, oh shit yeah this is not what i was thinking yeah. thought it was gonna be. they they look at the fast growing companies you know like you know the rise in positions the things that you could do in multiple like you have to wear multiple hats mm -hmm. but what they don't see is like the huge amount of work you know like the, the multiple hats you have to learn the skill set you have to yeah. go get yeah. and the fact that like you're kind of in a situation where you're in limited you have limited time and resources and it's kind of like a do or die situation right as a company so i think they don't realize that right um and you have to be able to adapt um significantly throughout the changes the org happens right sometimes they'll they'll shift direction completely and you don't realize that and you just have to be able to shift gear with them in large organizations you don't really have to deal with that kind of situation mm -hmm. yeah um but yeah going back um I then moved on to an ad tech company, which is one of their investments. I was their employee number one. I helped build out their ad operation and media buying business. Um, and I took it from a few thousand to millions of dollars in two and a half years. Nice. After that, I joined a telehealth company called Simple Contacts, which is now Simple Health. I was their 14th employee, uh, their second person on their growth team. And I helped take that company from 10K to a million dollar a month in two years. And now I'm at Hero and I'm doing it a third time. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I'm curious then. So that's a super interesting trajectory. What was it about Hero specifically that kind of was interesting to you? What what drew you to, to these guys? 
Yeah, no problem. So one thing I'd like to know is that when when I was introduced to Hero, um, I was their second employee, right? Mm -hmm. So Hero is not what Hero is today. Mm -hmm. um, I think they had three or four SKUs. Um, people didn't really know about the, the brand itself. Um, so you didn't have a ton to go off of. But I think what really kind of made me decide to join Hero um, was the founders, right? Jude, Dwight, and Andy, um, definitely hands down, they were the reason kind of why I joined. Um, and one of the big things about, you know, early stage startups is that, you know, the big piece that you really kind of have to like bet on is, is the people, mm -hmm. right? Because I know that found, you know, I know that startups go through a lot of different changes and you need to have supportive founders, right? These are the people who you're going to be working day in, day out, and you're going to be dealing with some really tough situations. Um, and I wanted to find good founders who were willing to trust their people, right, and let them do do their job, right, and be very supportive to them. Um, and for me, you know, I found that in Jude, Dwight, and Andy. Um, they're very supportive founders. They kind of get out of your way and let you do your job, right? Some founders want to be like really, really involved, and mm -hmm. that usually causes some problems, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, like why hire someone who's an expert in something and then try to get involved and dictate the direction of it? But I understand they're the founders. They have, you know, the veto power. They have the right to direct the company whichever way they want. But you should really trust the people that, you know, you hire. Um, and, you know, we built an amazing culture um, with the early stage teams that came on board. Um, and it was one of the, the, you know, I think it was one of the keys to our success. That's super interesting. I mean, the hire great people and move out the way. It's interesting because I think a lot of people like, again, the theory of it, but the application of it can be the, the challenging piece, you know. Um, yeah. And, and I could, yeah, I, I, I totally see what you mean. Like as a founder, it's the baby, right? And so like letting go mm. of the baby slightly can be, can be really interesting. Well, powerful, but also challenging. <laughs> I'm yeah, it's consider... like, how do you give up control? You know, like even in your own role, right? I'm yeah, sure you yeah. like people have experienced the situation where like, you know, you hire someone and you're no longer, you have to manage them instead of doing all the work. You have to, you know, give up that control and let them handle it. Right. And it's, it's yeah. very scary. Now imagine a founder doing it where yeah, you're like, totally. I'm giving, you know, like the future of my company to this person I barely knew. <laughs> totally, totally. Totally. So yeah, I, I definitely, it's interesting. I see it from both sides of the point. I suppose a, a big part of these conversations I'm having during this series is kind of picking apart like what's going on in the world at the moment with a bit of a lens of what's happened over the last couple of years, just because it's been so unique, I suppose. One key thing that's kind of happened that I'm keen to explore with you is the iOS 14 updates. Loads of interesting chatter that had gone on because of that. But I'm curious, like, what did you see? Were you guys badly impacted? Did it not impact you? How did you see it? Yeah. Um, so I think it impacted us a bit, but it wasn't too much. Not as much as how it impacted kind of other people, right? Mm -hmm. At least what I've heard from like, you know, the Twitter and everyone else I kind of talk about. I think the real tough situation with, with iOS 14 was that we didn't know what we were expecting, right? We didn't know how big the impact actually was and people didn't really know how to prepare for it. Mm. Um, and then suddenly it happened and it was a big impact, right? <laughs> and essentially you had to throw out your whole entire playbook on yep. like paid social on Facebook, right? Um, and some people couldn't really adapt to that because, you know, they were like, oh, what are we going to do? You know, CPAs are going up, ROAS are going down. Like, what, what do we do in this situation, right? 
And I think for us, it wasn't too bad because I feel like I, I like go in these situations all the time, just not as a stream as, you know, like iOS 14, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Like a platform could change the way they, they do their algorithm, right? Yep. The way that it kind of works. And you essentially have to throw everything you know um, that you've learned in the past year out the window and then you relearn it, right? You go back yep. to your basics, what you can control, what you can't control, yeah. right? Yeah. And like you have to test and experiment and you basically figure out how to, you know, what's the edge, what's the new edge, what's the new tactics you have to do. And that's basically what we did. Um, and for us, you know, we, we lean more into the automation side of them. Uh, of things, you know, the algorithm side, just because you couldn't really do like the hundred campaigns with the, with the small audiences anymore, because that didn't exist anymore with this iOS 14. So it was tough because you had to essentially give up control and, and give it to the algorithm. You had to trust the algorithm. Right. Um, and the system, like, you know, Facebook themselves were actually like trying to figure out what's their solution. And it took them a little bit of time. Interesting. So I think yeah. that part was also very rough because they're relearning how they should do it and you're relearning how to do it. Um, and so like it's basically everyone's like relearning and like it's a little bit rough part. You know, whenever you learn something new, it's always a little bit rough. Um, but that was kind of what we did. And, you know, I think the really interesting thing about iOS 14 is that it, it opened the door to other platforms right normally ones that you wouldn't probably like go into or look at because you know facebook is kind of like i would say like the king of paid social advertising yeah, yeah, yeah. right they're like the very very best but the moment this kind of happened you're like okay everything is probably at the same level set right is there another opportunity somewhere else and for us we were looking at a platform way before ios 14 kind of happened right um and we were kind of one of the earlier ones and then that was TikTok. Right. Yeah, so we had set up everything for TikTok and we were kind of experimenting with different type of ads there already. So when that happened, we were like, you know, I think TikTok is the platform that we need to invest more resources into. Um, so that's what we did. And, you know, the rest is history. Right. TikTok kind of blew up over the yeah, pandemic interesting. and everything. And that was kind of where the place where we found a lot of gains. And I think when you look at these situations where something major happens, you have to be open to see like, you know, everything else, right? Are there other opportunities? And this opened the door to another platform, right? Yeah, that's so interesting, man. I mean, it's like any concept, right? Even the maybe macro challenges that we're looking at at the moment is trying to spot the opportunities and turn the challenge on top of its head and, and, and spot where are there potential um avenues to, to 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 grow and learn and, and do something differently i'm keen to just double click on the the tiktok piece though because that's yeah. super interesting there's loads of interesting angles and perspectives on that i'm curious like what are you guys doing on tiktok is it an awareness piece are you working with like tiktok creators and in their creator program like how are you guys tackling it yeah um so I think with TikTok, one of the big thing is like, you know, I always look at, you know, the creative and I'm like, how do I make things as native as possible, mm -hmm. right? To, because that's what you want, right? You don't want to break the train and thought in any kind of platform you're kind of working with. Mm -hmm. So your creative needs to be as native as, as possible. So for us, you know, we were like, you know, these creators are really, really smart. They're doing new things. It changes constantly, right? So we worked with a lot of kind of like the micro influencers, nice. right? Yeah. Um, and the creators that we kind of had on board. Um, 
And that was that was the key, right? Because they would always create fresh content. They would kind of know what the trends are. And you know, I I'm a big person where I'm like, you can't chase virality, right? Like that's a, that's a bad idea. Like don't do that, right? Um, but you should always have some stuff where you're going on trend, and other stuff is like things to try, right? That you yeah. think is good for the brand. Yeah. And I think working with these micro influencers was really, really, really good, right? Because like I would say, getting creatives created by like the agency or outside or in house, it, it takes time, right? And it takes expertise and it's expensive, right? But you have people who are, you know, like TikTok is new, right? Everyone is kind of learning it at that time. But you have these creators who are basically spending hours and hours on TikTok, right? Why not use people who spend all their time on TikTok creating videos? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's my thought. I'm like, why yeah. not? And and it worked, right? And it panned out and it worked really well. Um, but yeah. That's super interesting. I suppose it, it feeds onto like another question I wanted to explore with you, and that is uh, maybe uh, taking a step back and broadly speaking, how are you thinking now in whatever June twenty two about acquisition versus retention? Are you heavier on the retention? Are you still exploring acquisition? You know, how are you guys thinking about it right now, and maybe out, you know, looking further yeah. into the rest of the year. I think I think the thought process probably should never be like, is it acquisition versus retention? I think the the real thought process should be acquisition plus retention, mm-hmm. right? They're different side of the same coin, right? You can't have a growth engine run properly without both, right? Uh, I think acquisition is going to be a challenge um, going into this year, um, and that's because of the macro environment that's happening outside, right? But I also think you know, retention is something that you should always be working on. And that's something that we've always been working on. Um, and we did something earlier in, in Hero where, you know, I brought in the broader team into retention, right? The customer service team, the community team, um, the email, SMS, it was a whole team effort, right? Because essentially, I think retention really, really falls on the team as a whole, not mm. just on growth, right? Because, you know, customer service is handling returns, right? Yep. Complaints or things like that. That's really big part of retention, right? Product development is creating different products that, you know, you could extend that like life cycle, you know, um, with purchase life cycle. And, you know, community is working with like creating the community and keeping on top of the customers, you know, top of mind. And I think that's part of the retention part where I think some companies really think it's only like one department or one person, right? That's not really the right way of thinking about it. And I don't think it's the most effective. And for us, retention has always been a big part because if you've ever been part of a fast growing company um, and, you know, acquisition, you can keep going up and up and up, right? And you have to keep spending money every month. It's going to get harder and harder and harder, right? So you really need that retention piece to kind of coincide. And you'll, you'll get this kind of like chart where it's like, you know, first time revenue is going up and returning revenue is going up. And it's like kind of running in parallel and you're really good. You'll get that cross from returning revenue. It sees first time revenue. And that is a magic moment for any kind of growth person or anyone in business where you're just kind of like, wow, that is amazing. Right. And I think that's the piece that everyone should try to shoot for. Um, So yeah, my advice is work on both. Um, acquisition is important. It's going to be harder this year. Um, but when is it not hard, right? Um, when is it not hard? So, but with retention piece, like this is something you as a company or brand should always be working on and you should get it as good as possible, right? Until you can really get like a hundred percent, you're not there, right? And that's probably not possible, but you want to get as high as possible. 
Yeah, totally. It's such an interesting point. And I, I'm always miffed why so my more brands don't think about retention more holistically. Like I've had a number of experiences recently where some of them have been like direct consumer brands. Some of them have just been like, like I hired a, a car through an app the other day mm-hmm. and it was like a really shitty experience. And I gave them feedback and I was talking to the customer service person and it was a terrible experience. And at the end, I kind of said to them, I was like, guys, just like, so you know, I'm kind of in the space. You should be turning me into an advocate because right now I'm a detractor. I'm engaged with you, but they, and I asked them, I was like, what team did you work or do you work in? And, and this person like worked in the finance team. And I was like, I reckon I should be talking to your customer service and your marketing team because I'm, I'm, I'm a customer here and I'm not having a great experience. You could be turning me into an advocate. And it, it just went nowhere. So it was just a really good example where that holistic view that you talk about, a lot of companies just don't seem to be thinking like that. Like once you've got that customer in there, you're going to have shitty experiences potentially, but you can turn those shitty experiences into advocates, which therefore reduce your cost of acquisition yeah. because you're already there and i've went and told my friend hey these guys are great they turned my bad experience into a sick experience and now they've just acquired somebody for free right yeah and they're like you know like people always say like how word of mouth is really hard to kind of influence and i'm like you have the opportunity right like customer service people you're talking to them like you know you're talking to the customers directly right right there when they have a problem right and if it's very very good you know they're going to tell other people they're going to feel really positive about per- your brand and your product, and then they'll go tell other people, you know, about it. Um, and one of the one of the big things if you're in like commerce is like sometimes like um, one thing I've realized is that like some people people don't really read that, that much anymore. So with instructions and stuff like that, they might not, you know, they might they might not read the instructions although it's on the box. And to use the prop the product properly, right? And for us, like you know, it's you have to use our product properly in order to get the magic moment, right? Yeah, that interesting. Right? And yeah. we really want people to, to get there, right? So we try to explain and we try to help them along. And I think this piece is, is really, really important um, as a brand and you should really focus. And there's like tons of super good nuggets um, in any of these, like the, the review stuff and the customer service stuff. And if you're really not taking advantage of it, like you're just like, you're missing out, right? Totally. Like, I try to table. come up with new stuff when there's a bunch of stuff there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's an interesting concept. I think maybe because like just keeping it simple and getting back to basic can sometimes seem like you're stagnant or you're not growing or you're mm-hmm. not going forward. But yeah, I think there's something to be said in that. I mean, you mentioned an interesting thing there. And what I thought was curious, you guys have got like a dedicated reviews page, which I've not seen that often. Like it's usually lumped in on the PDP, usually quite hard to find and usually not a very useful mechanism, but you guys have got like a dedicated section. Is that because of that um, product and educational piece to the product journey you were just talking about? Is that kind of why you decided to do that? So, yeah, I think reviews are, are really, really important in the purchase journey, right? Nowadays, I think, you know, because of the access to, you know, information and in, in the rise of Amazon, right? Their reviews, right? People have kind of more instinctively be like, hey, if I'm looking at a product, I need to look at the reviews, right? Like, and they read other people and, and they ask, am I facing the same problems that this person is facing? What is their experience with it, right? Like, what is their feel for it? Because it's really, really, really difficult. Before then, we used to do like, we used to trust like listicles and we go on YouTube and, yeah, and we look yeah, at yeah, stuff yeah. like that, right? But now there's so much reviews, right? And I think reviews play a really, really big part in, in purchase journeys. Um, that page in particular started out when we were running like a retargeting campaign, 
right? We, we found a lot of users who went on our PDP and it didn't convert, right? And for me, this usually tells me that, you know, that it wasn't enough. Like there wasn't enough kind of like validation for them to actually you trust the product and if you see our ads it's like it's like magic right you peel all the patch it's the pimple conk like how can you believe that right yeah, some yeah, people yeah. do some people don't right they're yeah. like this this you know marketing is like oh is it like really too too good to be true right yep, and the yep, product yep. actually works like that which is amazing but some people are skeptical people are naturally skeptical so the review page was was created because of that um and we drove traffic there and, and the performance was decent right but it wasn't like amazing, blow your mind, right? Yep. But what we also realized is that a lot of customers who come on the homepage or PDP will naturally click on the review, right? And I think that's because, you know, they're looking for a specific problem or what products to actually buy. You know, when a first person comes to your website, like, you know, they, they're interested in this product, but, you know, that product might not be right for them, right? Mm -hmm. But you have mm -hmm. a ton of other products, but they're really kind of interested in your brand and what you're, what you're selling, right? Like in, in act, like they might have a different type of, you know, acne or situation that they're dealing with. And they're going to review and we see people spend like you know a minute here right which is kind of a long time for mm. like you know usually you get like you get like 15 seconds if you're lucky right yeah. um but they're spending time reading the reviews looking at different products um and i think this is a good way to kind of redirect people into other products that you have instead of that you know add pdp click out right yeah. and this yeah. was interesting we kept it there because of that um, so yeah, that was kind of the interesting part in the purchase journey. So I think is really, really interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. You mentioned something there that I did want to explore with you because I was curious to learn that you are quite uh, big into marketplaces, which is not something mm -hmm. I would have naturally known um, from the face of the brand. I'd, I'm keen to understand, like, do you think marketplaces are good for emerging DTC brands? Um, and assuming they're the right fit, like, are they essential for awareness on a larger scale or do you think they pose too much of a challenge from like a margin and control perspective and then i suppose how are you guys approaching marketplaces yeah i think you know this this is something where you have to look internally as a brand right and you have to kind of understand your customer right if your customer is there does it make financial sense for you and do you have the resource and time to to support it Right. I think these are these are key questions that you have to ask yourself when when dealing with with marketplaces. Right. Um, and, you know, if they're yes on all these things. You should be there. Right. Because that's where your customer is. Um, do I think they're essential? Um, I I want to say no, um, but they definitely help. Right. And I, I don't think you should look at it from, you know, are they essential or not? Should we do it or not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of think of it as, you know, you're, you're building blocks right to the big moment, right to the huge awareness piece where everyone kind of knows you as a brand. And this the marketplace are, are another channel. Right. There's just a lot of companies who, you know, there's a lot of companies who've done it without these marketplaces. Right. And they're like really well funded, you know, like they have the money to kind of go after it. But what most some people don't know is that at one point we weren't like a, a funded company, right? We were completely, you know, like bootstrap and everything. Yep. yep. Um, and I think these marketplaces help you reach customers that you normally couldn't reach, right? Um, and they're there and we realized our customers were there. So we were like, hey, that makes sense. Let's go, right? Um, the thing I would say about these marketplaces is that some of them are a lot earlier um, in their stage than others, right? I think Instacart and GoPuffs are more on the, they're, they're still figuring out, right? Their marketplace, they're still kind of acquiring new customers. Their ad platform is very, very new. But 
this shouldn't deter you from entering into these marketplaces. I think this is a place where where you need to kind of start seeding things, right? Where you need to learn about, you know, how do they work, right? What is their app platform? Right? What are the kinks, right? What are the operations? Set your set your bones in now, um, so that like when they do pick up, you're ready to go, right? What you don't want is that you don't want to hear about it and that they're blowing up, and then you're trying to get in because that's going to take <laughs> you like a month or two, and and you've lost the opportunities, right? Um, and I think. That's one of those things you have to look at these emerging kind of like marketplaces. If the consumer behavior goes there and people are there, you need to kind of be there. I'm super curious then, like I was talking to someone about it yesterday. How do you figure out whether your customer is there or not? What What's the process and the strategy? Is, is, it, is it a bit of a gut feeling? Is it based on their kind of demographics? So you're like, okay, we think they're going to be I don't know, maybe everyone's an Amazon user. So that's maybe not a great example, but <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, how, how do you know? And it may, let's assume that it's a new marketplace that doesn't necessarily exist. Maybe it's some sort of curated marketplace um, mm-hmm. that's blowing up. And how do you kind of figure that out? I mean, it's it's tough, right? Because they don't always, they're not always upfront with you about like, you know, what their customers are, right? Or who their customers are. Like the platforms are, they'll give you the general numbers and everyone yes. gives the general demographic numbers. But like, can you really trust that, right? You don't know, right? I always take a look at, you know, like what is actually like in the marketplace now? Right. Are there competitors there? Are there someone else there? Do they have a good number of, you know, lines for because like what, what you'll notice is that some of these marketplaces, they'll, they'll start to recruit like certain brands on there. Right. Because that's the direction, you know, where, where they're going. Right. So you always want to take a look at, you know, like, you know, the type of SKUs that are on these marketplaces. Yeah. Um, yep. And when you don't see any in your line, it can be two things, right? One, you're you're early, right? Yeah. Yep. So it's an opportunity. Thing, right? Get in there. Yeah, it's Thank an opportunity, you. right? Yeah. You're the first yeah. one there. You don't yeah. really have to fight other people for spaces. Or it could be, you know, there's a ton there and in, in the in the pie is a lot bigger. Right. Yeah, and interesting. I think for you, you really have to kind of experiment, right? Um we, we as marketers, you know, like in people and companies, we like to think like we know everything about our customers, right? Where they are when, and that's not true, right? And you shouldn't let that get into your mindset because like you might discover a whole new pocket of customers that you didn't even know existed, right? And this is the part where I think, you know, you have to really judge what is the pros and cons. Like, is it is it worth it? Like, should we just go in, test it and see if our customers are there? I think that that's really really important, right? Um, for you to kind of do that and like take risk, right? I think sometimes people are really afraid of taking risk. And I'm just kind of like, you're at a startup, you already took a big risk, right? Like, I mean, like, and you're afraid of taking a small risk to go into a platform to see if your customers are there. Uh, you know, like, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, and I think it's about taking the the right amount of risk and, wh- and learning when to take risk, right? Um, and that's the important part, right? Always test, always experiment, see if it's right. And if you have a gut feeling, you know, I think gut feelings are are developed by, you know, experience yep. um, and, and decisions and, you know, know-how within the industry, right? And you should trust your gut feeling. Like you should build it and then trust it, right? If all your gut feelings are wrong, definitely don't trust it. <laughs> like, but like, you know, you know, it tends to, you know, occasionally it'll get right. And as marketers, we fail like 80% of the time, but it's yeah. really that 20% of time that when we do succeed, that's the point where, where like, I think businesses are like made and like, you know, that's how you get humongous growth numbers. 
Yeah, that's super interesting. And I, I think it's curious because um, when we were going back and forth between uh, before this 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 episode, you you were mentioning that you sit more on the data side of a traditional marketer. Yeah. So I'm curious how that then applies within that framework. Like, how do you use data? Like, are there challenges to being too data driven? You know, you, you mentioned the the gut feeling piece, like. How do you know when to cut things off? You know, is it purely data driven or do you have a bit of a feeling like, okay, this thing is not working? How do you sort of apply that to your role? Yeah. Um, so being, I think having a really kind of damn mindset, it's like having like superpowers, right? It's like spidey senses, right? Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. sense danger or you can sense opportunity. And I think data kind of really gives you kind of like a head up, right? When something is going on or when something is going poorly. Right. And I always equate it as like, you know, I'm a diver. Um, so like data is kind of like fins to a diver. You can swim, mm -hmm. but with fins, you could change direction, you can move faster. Yeah. Yeah, right. And that's kind of how I, I think of I think of data. Right. And it can really kind of help you. Um, but it's also something where raw data is not helpful at all. Right. We've entered into this age where there's a ton of data, like a tremendous amount of data on e-commerce and all the platforms. And you have to process that data. Right. And I think this is kind of like where we're at right now for most companies where like we're trying to figure out how to process all this raw data to make it actionable insights mm -hmm. for for people within the org to use. Um, and, you know, to help them move faster, to help them make decisions, to help them seek opportunities, right? If you don't really know where the opportunities are or you don't know what to do, reference your data. I'm sure your data will tell you. Like data has a, like you can manipulate a little bit, but like it'll tell you the truth, the pattern, things that are there, right? And it's kind of an unbiased opinion, right? Like usually in, you know, organizations or when you're making decisions, bias is always introduced, right, into the decision-making process. And the reason I really like data is because you can't really run away from it, right? It's like, it doesn't change. It's there. Mm -hmm. It's telling you the truth, right? Uh, unless you get bad data, then, then, it's, then it's definitely not the truth. It's lying to you. But you need to make sure your data is good that's going in. And I think, you know, I've for me, when I see a decision, the best decision winning and there's data behind it, that's when I'm like, this is this is a good decision, right? As a team, like we understand that like, you know, this is the direction that something is moving in and this is why we took X action, right? Um, so I think data is really important in, in the organization, right? Um, a few other challenges with data is that, you know, normalizing and collecting the data is, is difficult, right? Mm -hmm. It's gotten a lot easier, right? Mm -hmm. With all these kind of like, uh, like Fitran, the ETLs and the ELTs out there, the databases mm -hmm. and the BI tools. It's gotten yep. like, it's gotten cheaper and it's gotten easier for brands to do so. But there are still pieces that are really hard to get. Like, for example, retail data, it's extremely difficult to go get and to normalize it within your DTC. And like, even like, like Amazon data, right? Like this stuff is like, it's like, you know, it's it's behind another company, right? And what data you have access to. Like when you're a much larger company, you have to look at it, your business whole like as a whole, right? You mm -hmm. can't really look at it from one piece and have each department working on their own, right? It's just not a it's not a good way to move, right? Um, so I think that's a really interesting piece and that's difficult. And I think it'll get easier as time goes on. The other thing is 
how do you enable other people within your organization to use that data, right? People who are not like, you know, data savvy, right? How do you get them to actually incorporate data into their daily works and lives and understand that data can help them make decisions faster, right? Make the right decision, plan out their roadmap, right? Um, and this has been a challenge, but it's also been something that's really rewarding. Like for me, when I came into Hero, I knew that, you know, I really want to develop a data-driven culture at Hero. Um, and most, you know, beauty brands, they don't always have that, right? Like they don't, like, I mean, their, their thing is like, you know, we sell, you know, like beauty products or makeup products. We don't really, we don't really look at, you know, the, the data in there that helps us drive decisions. Like, is this a good product? Are people purchasing this? You know, what is the reaction? What's the review numbers? Um, and, and these are really, really important pieces, right? That can help you make better decisions, right? To help you notice that is there a problem um, with this one product, because we're seeing lots of more negative reviews, right? And they're coming in, it's a specific issue, right? And data, you can capture all that data, right? And I think this was a piece where like, you know, you you teach your, you know, your coworkers to be like, hey, look at this number, right? Like, does this make sense to you, you know, like in their daily work? And like, can they help them do make decisions faster? But it's also, you know, you need to get to them in a timely manner, right? Um, and it needs to be quick, it needs to be fast, it needs to be easy for them to use. Um, the other thing is like, I think a lot of organizations have bottlenecks, right? Mm. Where like one person controls all the data and like you mm -hmm. go to them, you're like, hey, can I get this report? And like that person is slammed because other people are asking for them. You, you don't really want that, right? You don't want bottleneck or like information silos within your org, right? You want to be able to give out the information, you know, let people access it so that if they find something interesting, they can go down, you know, that route. And if they, they might find an opportunity, right? For me, like, I don't know customer service as well as the person who runs our customer service. I don't know community as well as the person who runs community, right? But I want them to give them the access to this data and, you know, to help them, you know, because they know their function the best. They know what KPIs or what metrics they need to go after, right? And I think for anyone who has, you know, a big data background, you should help your coworkers understand this piece, you know, get them to be better, right? To be faster, right? And when you're in a small org, like everyone has to be quick, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You have to be quicker on decisions just because you don't have the, the manpower that a huge organization has. You don't have like a 10, 15 person team doing this. <laughs> exactly. I think that's an interesting point there, the democratization of the data. And I mean, you, you touched on some really salient points. I'm keen to switch gears a little bit and sort of start to round out the conversation. And I'm keen to understand from your perspective, given you've been in a few orgs now and grown them, if you were... Uh, if someone was coming to you and they're embarking on their own growth journey, what yeah. would be like the best piece of advice you would give to them? Let's say they're in a brand, they're starting off, you know, in a startup, maybe it's a beauty brand <laughs> and they've gone into a position that you went into at employee number two. What would you suggest to them to be doing in their first year? Yeah, I think you really have to understand, you know, where, where the business is at. Right. Um, there's kind of like I think of it as like two life cycles of, of a business. Right. There's the pre-product market fit and there's the post-product market fit. And this really determines what you need to focus on as a growth person. Right. The first part, the pre-product market fit. Right. You need to understand that you need to be, be focusing on creating a clear path to sustainable user engagement and value creation. Mm -hmm. Right. This is this is the part where, you know, you haven't quite gotten there yet. 
um, but you, you're, you're like, you're like testing the product, you're adjusting it, but you're trying to create value and you're trying to create, you know, user engagement here. I think this part is like really, really important. Um, and the second part is, you know, the post product market fit. And this is the easy part. This is like where you like pour money into acquisitions, you like light it all <laughs> up and like you, you invest in growth tactics. Right. And I think for me, most of the time when I'm in an org, it's, it's usually the pre-product market fit and I get them to the post-product market fit. Um, and I think that's kind of like the, the stages that people have to kind of identify, right? Where you are at. Most people think they're in the post-product market fit, but it, unless you've been there and you know what it's kind of like, you're, you're probably not. So here, let me give you an example of how to kind of really kind of identify, you know, which one, you know, your, your, the metrics to kind of help you, when to know, when to sprint, right? And I always come back to the, the purchase funnel right the acquisition yep. Yep. activation retention referral revenue yeah yeah right? um for a lot of the growth people you know like we focus on the top line growth metrics right the acquisition activation piece this is like you know how do you find your customers right how do you get them to the ah moment right and these the type of metrics that kind of go in or the kpis that you look at are usually you know your traffic your email list growth your conversion rate right you should be tracking all of these and these are kind of your core focus but your trigger metrics or things that you should regularly check in on are, you know, your retention rate, your engagement, right? Mm -hmm, your mm -hmm. your word of mouth, you know, mm -hmm. these like card sizes. These are the other other things that you need to kind of regularly check in on and what the numbers are. And when you have a healthy blend of traffic, activity, and retention, that's when you know this is the time to sprint, right? This is the time where I need to go for it, right? Where I need to take money, pour into acquisition, and just fill the top, right? The hard part is really the retention, the referral part, and the revenue yep. part. The car This is very, very difficult, um, and it's very unique to to your business, right? Like most of the, most of the time, you know, people are like, "Oh, like you know, it's the same," but it's it's not, right? Your customer interacts differently with your brand than someone else's, right? So I think this is the part where you have to tweak and get right, and then once you get it right, it's acquisition channel is not that hard right like i mean at least you know i don't think it's too difficult like these days you can get up and running on facebook and like tiktok in a matter of like minutes yeah 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 so yeah. i think these parts are are where like you know you really need to focus on um and once it's right you know you're it's going to be good right you're going to yeah. be cruising <laughs> but like you have to get it right in the first place it's cool. definitely yeah hard. yeah yeah no i think that's a nice way of laying it out final question and I might know the answer to this. It might have something to do with scuba diving, but what would you be doing if you weren't working in e-com? <laughs> I'll definitely be scuba diving in the morning. <laughs> I think that would be the that would be the main thing in the morning. But I think it's afternoon, you know, like I would love to work with early stage startup. This is where uh, this is where my love is, right? I've joined three early stage startups and I always tell people like, you know, like, don't do it unless you love it, right? And like get a feel for it because this part is hard. This early stages is the most riskiest stage for a, for a company. And for me, when I look at early stage founders, you know, there's there's something about these founders who's willing to put everything, right? You have to be somewhat crazy to start a, a, a company, right? In the early stages, like yeah, you have yeah. to be like literally crazy. You're risking everything yeah. and the odds are stacked against you, right? Yeah. And there's something about, you know, them risking it all for an idea to kind of improve the world or to solve a problem that they see, right? And I think this is kind of like, you know, magical. And like, you know, for me, uh, uh, lots of people have helped me in my life, right? And I'm really blessed to be where I am today because of all their help. And if I could help, you know, someone else who's struggling or who wants to make it, you know, I think it's it's a part of me as a human to help uplift them, right? 
Um, and this is something that I think, you know, if I ever get to a point where like, I'm like, let's just say I'm done, right? I'm like, retire. I think this is something I would continue to do is to help other companies, you know, get them there, help them to try to avoid some of the mistakes um, that can happen that could destroy a company, right? And I think that's something I would love doing. Um, and, you know, I talk shop with other people all the time. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's one of the most, you know, you come to the table with something, they come to the table with something and you share knowledge. And I think as you shouldn't hoard knowledge, you should share it. Right. And yeah. people shouldn't be afraid because like you're in such unique businesses. Right. And there's so many different types of factors that are coming in to your businesses that like one thing that might work for you might not work for someone else. But, you know, you, you, you talk about the different thought processes, the way you should think about it. And I think this is, these are the really, really important nuggets that I think should be shared, right? Because it'll just, you'll be like, ah, oh, I could do it this way, or I could think of it like this. And this helps you, and they'll go create other stuff because like, you know, they know like their business the best. Like yep. there's no way you'll know their business, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, nice. yeah. I think that sounds good. <laughs> so scuba dive, scuba diver, professional scuba diver, slash startup advisor i think that's a yeah. nice way to I think that's a nice, that sounds fantastic i think that's a good that's a good way to end the podcast alan thank you so much for joining me mate it was a pleasure wonderful thank you take care There you go. Massive thank you for joining us. Before I go, a quick word from my sponsor, Yotpo, the leading e-commerce marketing platform to increase customer engagement, promote community advocacy, and improve retention. If you want to learn more, go visit them at yotpo.com slash your basket is empty. And as always, if you like the episode, please leave a review, subscribe, download, and tell all your mates to do exactly the same. I'll see you next time. Yeah,